This guy can talk, but he also loves to listen. This is The Golden Mean with Michael Golden. Welcome to the program, everybody. Uh, People who do listen to this show know that changing our government, reforming our government, reforming our elections, basically our democracy is a huge passion of mine. And uh, I've got a great guest on today. David Myers is the publisher and executive editor of something called The Fulcrum. Now in its second year, it is a digital publication exclusively dedicated to covering reform issues um, and the things that are basically plaguing our democracy, in their words. So you can see how I'm simpatico with them after having written a book that suggests these reforms and how important it all is. Uh, David's coming to us from Virginia today. Um, Thank you for doing this, my friend. I really appreciate you taking the time, and this will be fun to talk about the fulcrum. I'm excited about it, Michael. Talk to people about its origin, about why it came to be, its purpose. Sure. So... The purpose of the fulcrum is to educate and inform people about the issues that are plaguing our democracy, as you said. Uh, as newsrooms have been cutting back both for-profit and non-profit, uh, you see more and more focus on things like horse race political coverage, who's winning the presidential race, who's winning the race for the House and the Senate, uh, all the coverage of the Trump administration, and less and less focus on the issues that make democracy work or not work. So there's less coverage at a national level on things like voting rights and redistricting and campaign finance reform, except when specific stories pop. Uh, so our goal is to bring to the democracy reform space coverage of the movement to fix the American political system the same way something like a Kaiser Health News covers the healthcare industry. Uh, it may not be a national name, but it is what triggers coverage of issues um, across the country. Yeah, and I wanted to tell folks, um, this is something that's really great for classrooms. This is it's great, great for any, any person in this country to read because it, it breaks down these issues. It's not some highfalutin white paper. Uh, these are consumable, uh, short enough articles, usually at, you know, 600 to 1,000 words, I think. And, uh, and I've, I've written for it, of course. Um, and it's a great way to learn about, well, what, why does our government suck, if you have that opinion? And is it, you know, every, it's so easy to blame it on the partisans and the parties, but there are deeper things. Um, and, and, and speaking of two in particular that, that I wrote about in Unlock Congress and have written about, as you know, very regularly since, the two big issues that you do cover are cor- corruption in politics, especially big money, big money interests, the way money washes through our system and impacts decisions in ways that most people they know it smells bad, but they don't. I don't think they fully realize the extent, and and that's this is what this is about. And the second thing is rigged districts. That's what I call it, uh, or started calling it long before it was used commonly. But the 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 word is gerrymandering, and that's how our legislators draw the lines in states, in state legislative districts, and in congressional districts to maintain power. Uh, for each party and 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 thereby making a lot of our votes inconsequential, inconsequential to even show up at the ballot booth. 
to talk about the coverage on those two issues and also David what what you think the, 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 look there have been a lot of wins in progress so talk about that too sure so uh, taking the corruption issue first and money and politics uh, so I what I would de- do first is differentiate between what we do and what some of the others in the space do so you've got somebody like an open secrets with the Center for Responsive Politics which does a lot of deep data investigative work into where the money is going and how it's being spent. Our focus is less on finding the specific cases where somebody has hidden some money or laundered money or done something irregular, and we look more at what the possible solutions are to the problem, if there even is a problem. Some people argue that the system works the way it is. Uh, the system works properly the way it is. Um, so we talk to groups uh, like American Promise, groups that are pushing what they call the 28th Amendment, which would overturn or reverse the Citizens United decision, created dark money and allows uh, independent expenditures that uh, where donors don't need to be disclosed. Um, the kinds of things that people say make the system break down because there's so much hidden money behind decision-making and behind elections. So we write a lot about the movement on that front to change how elections are funded, how where the money is being spent, but not so much on the investigative work. So for us, a story like what goes on in Seattle, where they created one of the first public financing systems for local elections, is fascinating because that can become a case study for how the system might be redesigned, uh, whether it's the municipal level, the state level, or eventually maybe a federal level. Uh, and that's an interesting point, too, that I wanted to make clear. Like, in my prior job, I worked for a company called CQ Roll Call, where we wrote about Congress almost exclusively. Um, but within that, we had a division that I ran for one period that focused on state legislative action. And what we learned, and really isn't a great surprise, but there's so much more going on at the state level than there is at the federal level, that that's where you're going to see a lot of changes happen. Um, states are going to enact uh, reforms that, if enough of them do it, can become a trend and happen maybe even at the federal level. Um, now, there's, of course, the reverse of that where things are never going to happen at the federal level based on certain decisions, and they're forced to happen at the state level. And that brings me to your other topic of gerrymandering. Supreme Court ruled recently that there's no role for the federal judiciary in stopping partisan gerrymandering, which means it is absolutely up to the states to do it themselves. And we're starting to see some more of that. Um, We're seeing states like my own Virginia now moving in the direction of establishing independent redistricting commissions. Virginia hasn't gotten there yet, but the legislature has taken the steps to put it on the ballot for a statewide initiative. Um, So I think you're going to see it go in that direction, given the way uh, Virginia politics has gone in recent years. But this is one of the biggest stories because there's a limited opportunity to affect change. Uh, redistricting happens once every 10 years following the census. Um, so if it doesn't happen now, then you're talking 10 more years before there can possibly be a different way of drawing lines. Uh, and when we talk about drawing lines, we're talking about the census determining how many people live in every state and then where they live in each state and then turning that data over to the states to determine how to draw state and congressional districts. And that is important for two reasons. One, it determines how we are all represented represented in our state legislatures and in Congress, but it also determines how federal money is allocated. 
um, which states get money, which districts get money based on how many people live there. Uh, and one of the great bugaboos of politics these days is the claim or the belief that uh, parties draw districts to defend themselves. You know, the phrase you hear is voters or politicians pick their voters, not voters pick their politicians. Because so many people live in districts where the outcome is preordained by the primary. And you live in a Democratic district, uh, you vote in the primary, and then whoever wins that primary is going to win the general because the numbers are so overwhelming. And the same goes the other way. This is certainly not a, uh, a one-party rules issue. Uh, you have an example like North Carolina where the Republicans control it uh, to – in a way that allows them to completely dominate the representation, even though the vote is pretty evenly split. So if they don't change it now, it's going to stay that way for 10 years. And then the same thing in Maryland, except it's reversed. Democrats control the legislature and have drawn the districts to ensure that they continue to control the legislature and continue to control the congressional delegation. And to toot my own horn just for a moment here, uh, Please. I'll say one of our stories. Uh, story that I did last fall, where we surveyed uh, about a half dozen experts on gerrymandering and asked them to identify what they think are the worst examples. And it turned into this really fascinating breakdown of the 12 districts that, for various reasons, uh, are among the most um, blatant examples of how districts can be drawn to uh, help the party in power or help uh, a particular group retain power in that area. You've got uh, Ohio with a couple uh, that are well-known because they look like animals. You've got the snake by the lake and one that's called the duck. Um, I already mentioned Maryland and North Carolina, the Atlanta metro area, Austin, Texas. So it's all over the country where this happens. Uh, and we want to be on top of the story because, like I said, this is the one time in a 10-year period where there's an opportunity to change it. It's funny that you just mentioned those. I'm wondering uh, if if the 4th District in Illinois is still in that top 10. It, National Journal did it when I wrote the book six years ago, but uh, it was the first campaign I ever worked on. And I sent a whole bunch of folks out uh, to do volunteering, uh, knocking door to door one day, and they happened to be friends of mine. And they called me from the farthest reaches of the 4th and said, Michael, um, we're, th there must be some mistake. The district's only two blocks long this way over here <laughs> i said that's no <laughs> that's no mistake uh that's luis gutierrez and that that was drawn to and he had with it basically this one of the safest seats in the country uh but but that's you look you break that down in a, in a great way david you know flipping over to the presidential um mm -hmm. presidential politics and, and the way our elections work there was a huge clamor obviously i mean there has been for years but the biggest one that after this last election to, to get rid of the Electoral College. Now, of course, um, people thought generally, well, you can't do that unless you have a constitutional convention. You have to change the Constitution, or at least you have to change the Constitution to do that. But then some folks, uh, some reformers, actually you and I both know personally, they started this um, Electoral College Compact where by if enough states agreed not to cast their electors at all unless all of them would cast it for the popular vote winner. They'd basically be overturning the Electoral College without needing the Constitution. I haven't checked of late, actually. Where does that stand? Uh, there hasn't been a ton of movement over the last few months. Uh, I don't think I'd have to 
dive a little bit deeper into the numbers, but uh, you're exactly right that that seems to be the flavor of the moment as a way to uh, get around the electoral college issues without having to go through a constitutional amendment. Uh, we're actually going to be having a webinar discussion on this on March 25th, uh, looking at this very issue of how to uh, reform or uh, potentially abolish the electoral college. But uh, at this point, most of the states that have signed on um, are blue states. Um, there's not a lot of partisan balance to it. And I think a lot of that is because uh of the recent examples where the popular vote winner has lost the Electoral College, it's because a Republican has ended up winning the Electoral College. So those states are uh, being more protective of their um, control of the process. Um, so there's still a long ways to go in order to get enough states signed on in order to make it effective. And then, of course, if they do get to that point, there will be a um, there'll be lawsuits, I'm sure, arguing that states don't have the authority to uh, supersede the will of their voters if and go by a national vote. So uh, it's a multi-step process, and we're a long way from any solution, but that is clearly something that's online a lot of reformers and something we're tracking closely. Yeah, that's one that would be incredibly difficult, I would imagine, to uphold in the courts. To the, and they and unlike the filibuster, that they would hear that they that would go to the Supreme Court. Um, yep. So, so let me uh, shift gears a, a tad. You, you <clears throat> we met at the very beginning of this uh, uh, before you even launched. Um, I'm I'm friendly with Nick Panaman, who's the head of Issue mm -hmm. One, and Issue One is for for folks who don't know, it's a wonderful organization, nonpartisan, and they have uh, God now over 200, I think, former elected uh, governors and congressmen and all kinds of uh, elected folks from both parties, and I think they keep them in equal number almost, just to just to to maximize that credibility. And so Nick and I, on the early end of this, uh, had been been thinking about this kind of a this kind of a, a publication because we were, you know, so many of us reformers were so frustrated that we couldn't teach folks more about this stuff and that there wasn't a dedicated place where you could really understand all the different reforms and there wasn't a political angle or any of that uh, BS associated with it. Um, so talk to me about since you've launched, since you, you, you founded this, what, what the challenges have been. I mean, you're starting a, a new digital news entity in an age where, you know, it's just incredibly difficult to begin with. And you're doing your, your narrow casting, which is in a good way. It, it, it's because it's a niche audience, right? That you don't want it to be niche. You want it to be huge. But at, at the beginning, you do have nerds like me who are going to tune into this stuff. But talk about, talk about the experience of building this thing, David. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, my thanks to you and Nick for even developing this idea and making it possible for us to build something. Uh, my former colleague and now partner on this, David Hawkins, and I came on board because we believe that there's a need for this kind of journalism. David and I both spent uh, more than two decades in political journalism, the for-profit space, uh, analyzing how Congress works. And what we've both noticed over the years is a shift in the type of journalism we were doing. Uh, speaking for myself, I started at Roll Call in the mid-1990s when it was a twice-weekly newspaper covering the inner workings of Congress. And 
you know, it was before we had a real website. There's no such thing as breaking news online. <laughs> so we took our time to develop thoughtful journalism around <laughs> how Congress works. Right. And not to say Roll Call doesn't still do that work. It does. But because the way the news industry has shifted, so much time is spent fighting for page views because you need to get ad clicks so you can fund your journalism. Um, so it became a lot of commoditized news, and it felt like we had lost some of the uh, cause-based sense behind our work from my early days in it. Um, so having the opportunity to launch the Fulcrum was exciting because it gets us back to what I considered my professional roots, where we were writing about politics for the sense of helping the political system, not just to um, write the same story that everybody else was writing because that was the news of the day. Now, that's also our challenge right now is so much of people's attention is focused on Donald Trump and the presidential election and now coronavirus. And there's always something that people, even though they say they care about these issues, don't know where to read about it. And we need to get in front of more people faster so they understand not only what the problems are, but what the potential solutions are. I mean, when we launched this, we were looking at survey data from exit polls, and we saw 80% of Americans believe there should be bipartisan political reform, and 55% said there, it should be a priority of Congress. Right. But that right. data doesn't translate into real action by decision makers, which is why you have over 100 or 150 groups that are trying to move their various uh, reform agendas along, and we're trying to bring a sense of cohesion to that, not in terms of controlling it, but in terms of covering it and seeing where the movement is and where the trends are and where there's progress being made. Um, so for us, it's a very personal story about the system that we care so much about and has spent our careers covering, uh, now having an opportunity to um, get back into that core reporting on how the system can get better is very meaningful to us. How's the growth been? Talk about that that curve at least so far. I mean, this 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 is hard getting you know, but I know that you have grown since its launch, and uh, you're what about eighteen twenty four months in. So we are now about fifteen months since we started our newsletter. Our website is coming up on our anniversary, which will be in early June, uh, and we have seen. Steady but not exponential growth. I mean, it, it's harding to see every month. Our page views are going up and our user counts are going up. Um, a lot of that is driven by social. I mean, people are seeing some stories that really resonate with them and they're sharing them and, and others are coming in and, and doing the same. And it's really interesting to see where those uh, those shares, those views are coming from. I, you know, I mentioned the... 12 gerrymandered district story, um, which is one example. But the other stuff is really interesting because a lot of it tends to be local stories that people are latching on to. And even if you don't live in those states, you're finding them interesting. So, for example, uh, about a month and a half ago or so, we did two stories on tribal voting rights in North Dakota and one in South Dakota. Uh, and those stories, which are admittedly about a fairly small population when you think about the country writ large 
are two of our five or six most popular stories since we launched. Wow. And then just last week, we did a story about um, Georgia, where the governor canceled a judicial election and decided he was going to appoint somebody to the state court instead of holding the election as uh, ordained by law. And so this is a story only about Georgia and about a judicial race, which normally doesn't get a lot of uh, coverage, but it's already in our top five stories most read. Um, so people are seeing that there's really interesting things going on in the world of democracy reform and the need for reform and responding to that. So I'm heartened that these stories that aren't about national issues all the time are still finding readers. So we just got to keep finding the ones that pop and get them in front of more people. You know, I don't know if you have read every single story on the subject I'm about to ask you, but, but I know a ton of people are curious about it. So I'm going to ask it anyway. And I really am too. And it's protection of our elections. And, and, mm-hmm. and to that extent, just how much or how little effort has, has actually not, not what people perceive because of t- Twitter and all that, and, you know, Ripley right. McConnell and so forth, but h- how much, because ele- my perception is that very little has been done to protect the elections and that, and that foreign interference continues apace, if not accelerated. So wh- wh- what could, could listeners take away from this in terms of your observation of coverage of that story with an election six months away? So that's a really interesting question because what it comes down to is a debate over whether you think, not you personally, but anybody thinks this should be a national question or a local question. Yeah. So when we think about elections, we think the United States votes every on election day gets together in their local place and vote. But really that is not a national process. It's a local process governed by states and municipalities. Um, so the big debate in Congress is you've got people, especially Democrats, arguing that the federal government needs to do more to protect elections. And you've got people on the right saying the federal government doesn't set the rules for elections. It's up to each state to decide how to do things themselves. And there's merit to both of those arguments. Uh, and that said, they did come to an agreement on providing more money to the states to do that. Uh, but they didn't agree on mandates for how that money should be spent. So one of the things that we've done, um, Bill Theobald, who's our senior staff writer and focuses on election security, he talked to uh, election security experts and election officials in the 12 or 13 key battleground states going into the presidential election to see where things stand. And what he found is on a state-by-state basis, the states are actually doing the things in most cases, that they need to be doing to protect their elections. You know, voting systems aren't connected to the Internet, and there are paper audit paper audit trails, so voters can see how they voted is recorded correctly, and if there is a recount, there's a paper trail to correct it or to uh, review the numbers. So uh, on a state-by-state basis, at least in these key states where the presidential race is likely to be decided, States actually seem to be doing a lot more than they're probably giving credit for, and it's something we tried to shine a little bit of a light on. What, what, what about voter suppression? So that's a big, broad topic. Yeah, um, <laughs> I just I, I realized right I realized right after I asked that it's like people ask people ask me, well, what do you think about the election coming up? <laughs> like, right, <laughs> that's a little broad. So well, so answer that any way you want, David. 
this is one of the stories that we are covering to a huge extent, and this is a good example of something where we are, again, trying to take a local story and show a national trend. Uh, the Democratic Party, um, through its um, campaign arms and some other groups, has committed to at least $10 million in lawsuits, to spend on lawsuits to uh, enable more people to vote in states where they think there is voter suppression. The Republicans, on the other hand, have recently announced that they are also going to spend in excess of $10 million defending against these lawsuits. And so the question is, what are these lawsuits about? It ranges across a variety of issues. In some cases, uh, you have states where elections officials are purging voter rolls, saying that this is a problem of voter fraud where people are registered to vote in more than one place, so therefore they can vote in more than one place, or they've moved, they haven't uh, notified their state or the local government. Uh, we need to clear out hundreds of thousands of people off the voter rolls. And the Democrats will come in and say that you're not giving people the proper opportunity, uh, not everybody gets mail the same way, so on, uh, that you're disenfranchising people. So that's one area where this is happening, and that's happening in multiple states. You've got other cases where uh, they argue over straight ticket balloting, that a voter should be able to come in and say, I only want to vote for Democrats, and hit one button and vote for all the Democrats or all the Republicans. And you've got voters on either side, depending on who controls each state, saying um, that that's, it's good because it enables more people to participate and it keeps lines moving. Uh, and it's bad because you're taking away the opportunity for people to give thoughtful consideration to each individual vote that they're casting. Uh, you've got situations where uh, the state, uh, the party in power in a state is always listed first in every race on a ballot. And data shows that that generally gives a 5% boost to that party. So there are lawsuits over changing how ballots are even structured in terms of where people are placed. You know, uh, in the Bush years, we've thought about um, butterfly ballots and hanging chads. Now we're talking about who's listed first on each ballot. Uh, so there's a lot of lawsuits around things like that as well. So... Uh, this is not going away anytime soon. You've got group people like Stacey Abrams and her group that are putting tons of attention and money onto it. Uh, so we are doing our best to cover as many of these uh, updates on these lawsuits as we can, because uh, while they, like I said, they are local stories, they show a really a national trend taking place. Wow. Um, one more question. And by the way, before I uh, forget, Fulcrum.us, thefulcrum.us. This is where you can find all of this news and information and as well as opinion and editorial, but uh, mostly news and coverage of, um, of all the things that David and I have, have been talking about, thefulcrum.us. All right, so the last question. You know, I, I've been involved in a couple of these, you know, foundings of a, a nonprofit um in higher education and, and a couple of them in higher education and, and one in, in digital journalism. And what I'm wondering is, as hard as this is, are you having fun? Is this, is this, I mean, I know how enthused you were to do it and you took a leap from a, you know, a, a, one of the legacy Washington journalism brands of, of congressional quarterly roll call to do this. It's incredibly difficult. Are you having fun? What's it like? I love it. Uh, absolutely. I'm enjoying every day of this. Uh, yes, it's stressful and you know, we need to build an audience. We need to raise money and keep both of those things moving in the right direction. But at the same time, 
building something new and important has been a blast from day one. Uh, every day we think about what's the right story to tell today. We think about how we want to reach more people. Uh, and we think about how we can make our outreach better. Um, there's nothing about this that I'm not enjoying. I, like you said, uh, so it's a little stressful <laughs> trying something new, but uh, it is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my career. Oh, that's great! That what a blessing, and that's that's when you feel most alive. That's wonderful. I and by the way, the, I should tell folks also this is a it's a nonprofit entity. Uh, people can make donations to it, but also it's funded by a number of uh, foundations, charitable organizations, and. Early on, when 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 Nick and I were kind of writing the plan, it had zero dollars, uh, and it's amazing how quickly, due to David, you and David Hawkins and and Bill and and Nick and and all of you, that that you you launched this thing and grown it and uh, built, I think, on that on that um, financial base, which is not easy to do. Not easy to do. Uh, this is, this is again, the fulcrum.us, folks. Please go check it out. This has been a pleasure to talk to my friend and colleague, David Myers, who's the publisher and executive editor. Uh, thanks thanks for taking the time, and thanks for, thanks for doing this. It's important, and people need to know about it. So I'm going to be pushing this everywhere I can, and not, not, just, after, not just this week, but, uh, but, but in perpetuity. I think this was a great conversation, and I hope people will look at the fulcrum. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Check out thefulcrum.us. Learn about your government. Learn about your rights. Learn about the way it should be, the way it was intended to be about 230 years ago when they wrote this blueprint for our country. And keep listening to the Golden Mean. Talk to you all soon.